You are listening to episode 28 of the R Podcast. Welcome to episode 28 of the Art Podcast. My name is Eric Nance and I'm the host of this little endeavor. And today in this episode, we are wrapping up our coverage of the 2019 Art Studio Conference. And after my play my interview, I will um, share some of my little additional little nuggets and gems I learned during the conference. But I don't want to delay any further. I am very excited to share with you my conversation with our studio software engineer, Max Kuhn. So let's play that now. It is the eve of the 2019 R Studio Conference, and I am hitting the ground running right away, so to speak, because my first guest is um, a software engineer now at our studio who I admire greatly. His previous life was working in the same industry I'm currently in, so we have a lot in common on that front. Without further ado, I want to introduce Max Kuhn to the R Podcast. Max, thanks for joining me. Oh, happy to be here. So... Last time we met at our studio conference, you were maybe a couple months into your career at our studio. Yeah, I just started. Yeah, just started. So, um, tell our listeners between then and now, what, has it been everything you expected, or been some kind of unexpected things? How's it been going? That's going great. I was like, boy, can I do like a, a gossip episode? Uh, oh, of a course. Universe gossip. Episode. We yeah. we never we no, never no. turn that down. Uh, it'd be boring. <laughs> uh, no, it's going really well. Um, we're, uh, we've been growing a little bit, so we have uh, a couple more people than we did when I first started, which is good. Not too many people, but um, uh, Davis Vaughn joined the group, and he's fantastic, very productive and smart guy, so that's Great. been a huge, huge help. Right. Um, yeah, so we're just, um, we're just knocking them down as we, you know, we know what we want to do. The, the roadmap's kind of there, so we're just mm-hmm. taking each one in turn and uh, trying to come up with a bunch of integrated pack. in my particular case, integrated packages for modeling. Right, right. And um, for those that aren't aware, you are, of course, the author of the Carrot Package, which got me into lots of algorithms like Random Forest, Gradient Boosting, a lot of those. And you had to solve a ton of issues to make that at least somewhat of a unified interface. But you're now, your Tidy Models ecosystem is trying to do this, like, like you mentioned, kind of in the Tidyverse way. Can you tell us what is different developing for tidy, the Tidy Model ecosystem versus what you had done with Carrot? Yeah, Carrot, um, so it's still being, you know, I've actually been doing some development on it lately, um, and it's not going away because I think some people are worried about that happening. Um, and it's not. But um, the thing about Carrot is I started, I had written like S-plus packages before I had done that. And I had maybe, I want to say I hadn't thought out what that package was going to be or eventually become. Because I think R also, R has evolved. So I started writing it in like 2004, 2005, right? And so things have evolved since then, which I don't think I would have been able to, been able to predict. Mm-hmm. But um, I kind of, um, this is maybe not a great thing to say, but I kind of view Carrot as like one of those cities that they find, you know, archaeologists find a city and then, you know, they, they look into it and then they find like a city that it was built upon another city, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's just been like, you know, with the, the different evolution of R and things that it's, um, it's just, it, it's been growing in that way. Um, as opposed to having like some really brilliant blueprint of like where it would be in 15 years. Um, and so, I mean, it, it's not, I don't, wouldn't say it's like poorly designed, but uh, the thing about Carrot is it's hard to develop for because it's so comprehensive at this point that, you know, if you want to make, like, you know, I wanted to include survival models in there. Mm-hmm. And just making that change was, that was potentially doable, but it was it was fairly invasive because of all the things you have to do differently for censoring and you know and just the types of predictions you might want to turn for those types of models. So mm-hmm. so anyway, in the new system, it's nice because everything's very modular. Yeah. So the resampling bits are in one package. The pre-processing, for the most part, is in another package. Mm-hmm. And those things um, work well together. They're not really cohesive. They're not like tightly coupled. 
mm-hmm. right? So they're not like it has to be done in this particular way to make them work together. So the nice thing about it is I have a lot more, um, for lack of a better term, like degrees of freedom. So I can I can implement things and not really get boxed into a corner. Um, so that's really nice. And and there's things that. Um, that I think are really kind of cool and useful, but don't have to be part of like the main package. Right. So, you know, Carrot has a lot of things in there. Just to be honest, there are things I thought, well, I don't think this is the best idea, but it might work like 1% of the time. So there's there's functions in there that do things where I, I don't know that I wouldn't say like, don't do them. But there are occasions mm-hmm. where you, you can't prove to somebody that something's a bad idea for their data set until you actually implement it. Right. But then I like stick it in care because who knows, you may want that at some point. So, um, so now, you know, for, for more niche type things, um, we can not have that live in the same repository. Yes. So that's, that's kind of nice also. Yes. Yes. And now of course you, you mentioned that so many things have changed since you started Carrot in terms of the R ecosystem. Obviously, the Tidyverse is one of the biggest additions to it. You've been really getting, you and your team at our studio have been really trying to augment a lot of these Tidy principles into this ecosystem. One of the newer, uh, not so much new now, but definitely last year was new to me, is this idea of Tidy evaluation. How has that been to get your head around that? Because I'll just speak from my experience. It hasn't been easy. I've been trying my best, and I went to Hadley's workshop last year at our studio conference, and we had a good section on it. It's, to me, still not quite natural yet, but tell me how you've been trying to learn that, that framework. Uh, well, yeah, I was learning it as it was being developed, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the easiest thing to do necessarily. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's an incredibly rich and incredibly powerful way of doing things, but I, mean, I think we're aware of this, that we need to come up with more documentation and like use cases, because you know, for me, there's maybe like, I don't know, maybe at most 10 or 12 things, like specific like design patterns that I would use as methods for. And, and so once I got those nailed down, I feel like, okay, I, I pretty much know what I need to know about this until you know, something else comes up. But, but I don't think we've, we've um, like had annotated examples of, mm-hmm. of, you know, of how like Arlang and, and Tudibao works. So you know, as an example, like we, have, we do a lot with expressions. And, but the, our definition of an expression is actually different than the base R. Um, the base R definition of an expression um, is not really what you would think of as an expression. So, so there's things like, you know, so we say we're using an expression, then we have to be more concise or maybe more specific about um, what we mean. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of things, you know, like a good example is maybe quasi-quotation. Yes. Like that's a pretty cool thing to be able to do, and I'm using it constantly. But even then, I get sometimes, um, sometimes uh, I get sort of tripped up over that. So mm-hmm. I think the implementation is pretty much where it needs to be. It's, it's stabilizing, um, which is good. So the names and things like that have been changing a little bit. But, um, but the core of it is, is, is excellent. And, in, and honestly, it really is the thing that's allowed me to do like recipes and, and this new parsnip package and all that. A lot of that, parsnip especially, relies quite a bit on our line because we end up... Um, so one thing Carrot did is, is we have this like unified interface to models. And, and the way I did that, which, which makes sense at the time, is to basically have a bunch of like code modules. Like you go to do prediction, right? So there's like a prediction function for every one of those models. Mm-hmm. And they're mostly similar. Um, so there's a lot of code duplication, but there's like, um, for every model, there's like a list of objects. So there'll be a list of like a, a fit function and a predict function. And the, you know, if, it, if the model has like tuning parameters, a, a function that generates those and so on. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so one of the things we did with Parsnip is we decided to look at this from the point of view of an expression. Like how can we say, okay, we want to fit this model or we want to make predictions on this model. We know what the eventual expression is that we're going to use. So instead of having a module, um, uh, we can we can actually build that up as a series, hopefully just one, but maybe a series of expressions that get um, evaluated in whatever environment that you're in. Um, so it's it's more concise. It it you know it's not um, a lot of code duplication, and and again it allows us to do some things that we were not able to do, or at least cleanly able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's an example. So let's say you have a model. I'm trying to think of an example like our part. Yes. And the, the tuning parameter we typically want to mess with is the complexity parameter. And that parameter is contained in the control function. Mm-hmm. So if you want, you know, if Carrot, for example, is going to come up with a grid of those, it has to substitute its grid of those complexity parameters into the control function. But it's possible somebody might want to modify something else that's in that control function. 
Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is you have to figure out if somebody passed in a control object using you know, the ellipses, like the three dots, yes. you have to recognize that. You have to intercept it. You have to then put in the values that you want to be in there for, the, um, for let's say, the complexity parameter. And then you need to execute that. Well, that's not in the dots anymore. So you just can't say R part with your arguments and then the three dots. Mm -hmm. You have to let, actually build a, a list of arguments. And then at the time, before tidyval, you know, we had do.call. Yes. Right. And, and that works pretty well. The, but like a nasty side effect sometimes is, and this is kind of like ridiculous, um, that when you, a lot of models, I'm not sure, I think our part does it, it saves a call, right? Yes. But if you use do.call, like our part on, an, on a list of arguments, it actually embeds that list, like dput like embeds that list into the call. Oh, that's gnarly. Right. So like if you have like a two gigabyte data set, uh -oh. and, right. And then you, you know, you, you have to do this and then, you know, at some yeah. point, like maybe like 2008, I'm like, what the heck? And, and like, what happened? And then, or I think it happened when I like printed the model out. Oh, okay. The final model, and it's like this, like, you know, screen oh. just regurgitates yeah, all the, over. The spaghetti of right. numbers. What do I do now? <laughs> so, I mean, it's not like that. You know, we fixed that, right? So, yeah. we, we just basically scrub the call in yep. those particular instances. Um, but that's like a side effect that we should be able to avoid. And so, by building that up as an expression, right? So, we can still we can take that, we can intercept that um, code object now, but instead of passing in um, as a bunch of arguments, we actually substitute in, like using quotation and things like that, into mm -hmm. an expression and evaluate that expression in that environment. Mm -hmm. Which sounds like a, like a bunch of voodoo, but it's just like a, once you've got it set up, it's a, actually a much nicer way to create these models or make predictions. Yeah, and I think, kind of getting to your point about learning tidy evaluation, once we get these kind of cookbook or, or, or uh, tutorials, vignettes, however you want to call it, it's going to make more sense that people like me that want to get their hands on something will want to not start from scratch yeah. and try to fumble my way through a very uh, challenging uh, framework for me personally, but I'm, I'm working on it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have like a toy example I use. So I'm, I'm finishing up writing a book and then I'm going to more slowly start running another one on like tidy modeling. Nice. Yeah. And, and that's, and I'm going to do it like on GitHub out in the open where people can look at it and, you know, look at, um, but I was trying to come up with like in a first chapter, like a, like a tidy eval primer for modeling. Yeah. So, you know, as I've eaten, so I wrote that, like I was on like the, the commuter rail into, into New York one day, like going to a conference or a meetup or whatever, and, and just started to write that. And, and that was like a year and a half ago. And even since then, I've had to revise it two or three times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of things that we just haven't um, come up with conventions for. And so as we do those things, um, you know, we want to update all this stuff. So it's still evolving to some extent. Yes. Not so much like it's not the, like Arlang, I don't think is evolving that much. Uh, how it's organized sometimes evolve, but like, but how we apply, let's say, um, quoting and things like that to arguments. Like, how do we want the user to interact with things? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a good example is, um, you know, when you run dplyr or select or whatever, you select some rows, you know, that, that function basically takes the data frame as the first argument, and then the rest of it's like three dots. Yep. So you can type in whatever, in unlimited number of arguments, right? Yes. So then, like when we're creating modeling functions, how do we want to use the three dots? Do we want to use that to specify um, like predictors or variables in the model? Or do we want to use that like it's more traditionally used to pass in arguments to other functions? Mm -hmm. And I think, we, I think we've sort of settled on how we think we want to do that, but you know, we need to use it for a little bit before we like, lock in what we want to do. Sure, exactly. And you know, part of this ecosystem um, that I'm really a fan of is the fact that we can pretty seamlessly use this to compare how different models perform on the same data set, maybe. And a lot of times in my day job, we'll often look at Bayesian models versus some more, you know, frequent just traditional ones. Has it been challenging to augment all these different models together, especially ones like, like the Bayesian models that might depend on other frameworks like Stan and, and things like that? Uh, it's, there have been hiccups here and there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, 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 I like Stan a lot. The, the R interfaces I a little, get a little bit frustrated with, but those have been actually pretty, using, uh, what is it, R Stan ARM, that's actually been really easy to use. Okay. So I've used that for Parsnip and Tidy Posterior, and that's been actually um, really nice to, to develop with. Um, 
but there's other packages that I want to use, but their interfaces are more difficult. Mm. Um, what is it? Uh, BMRS. Uh, that sounds familiar. I always, the, yeah. I always get the acronym wrong. Um, and and, and that, I like that package quite a bit, but I wanted to use that for um, Bayesian analysis of uh, censored centering, mm-hmm. right? Like survival models. Yes. Um, and, but you know, the way the form of the method works there, it almost precludes it from being used anywhere. So, or at least the way that you know we're developing, um, because like it uses, it has a, the formula has like a, a function it called sense s e n s, which is where you declare the censoring variable in mm-hmm. the formula. Okay. There's actually no function in that package with that name. So they parse that and they figure out, oh, okay, here's what that variable is, and and they have good reasons for doing that. But um, for me, if I'm trying to make a model matrix out of that formula. Like you can't do that anymore because you're using functions in that formula that don't actually exist anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I mentioned that, like in a GitHub issue, and I think I think they had the response of like, "Oh, right, like, well, why would you do that?" And I'm like, "Well, I'm doing that because you know we need X, Y, and Z to fit it into this like general framework, and that's not their problem." So I could see why they wouldn't have thought of that. But I, I, um, so I like that package a lot, and I want to use it. But it, that one has been a little bit more. Um, challenging to develop for. I see. So, but I like it and I would love to start. Uh, and, and it might be that, um, I fully acknowledge that it might be that, um, you know, the requirements that I'm having for using it, let's say in Parsnip or something, might be above and beyond what most people would expect to have developed. Oh, so sure. If yeah. you're rewriting the formula method, like, you know, having like a, an equivalent model.matrix function, mm-hmm. like that all comes along for the ride and everything else used with, mm-hmm. with that base R infrastructure. Yeah, but um, but asking them to do things like that might be, you know, I could see their response being like, well, yeah, why would we don't necessarily need to do that? That's a lot of work. Why should we do that? So, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And and in this ecosystem, I've always been curious um, as as a lot of statisticians and other data scientists are using these models on much bigger data sets. Has performance gone into your your thinking of how to optimize performance, or is that more of later on? Uh, it's I think about it quite a bit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, I think about it a lot. Um, you know, and and, uh, and so that's been brought up on Twitter and, and a bunch of other places in terms of the tidyverse and, and things like that. Um, I have some thoughts about how to make that better, at least for modeling. Um, I'm not sure I want to say it because like typically when I say, oh, I think we should do a, that might be some like thought I've had. There might be three different ways to solve it. But then like six months later, be somebody's like, well, when's the so-and-so package coming out? Like, oh, no, like, no, that's not my intention. Um, so, you know, I'm thinking about how we can store data better. Um, I kind of probably should defer the thoughts I'm, uh, or the, the, maybe the approach I'm thinking of until Arrow's like more on board okay because that might solve it in itself mm-hmm. um, and so that would be um, that would potentially be something that we could utilize at least from the you know so there's a, diff- a bunch of different aspects of it like you know I have a bunch of data um, I don't want to necessarily bring it into the R session so whether it's through like data.table or spark and things like that sure you know having a remote data set that maybe lives on disk um, would make a lot of, in some ways, make a lot of things easier. Um, so there's things like that. There's things like um, computational efficiency. Um, so we're trying to optimize that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some basic things that, you know, just about, you know, S and R were, or the S language was developed when they weren't, I mean, there was no notion of like, you know, hard drive didn't have like more than a hundred megabytes on it, right? So it was like, right. I mean, that was probably been like a million dollars to have that <laughs> back in the day. So like, yeah. you know, they're not thinking about certain things like that. So, um, so we're we're thinking about it um, quite a bit. Uh, I I've been having to um, stop myself from developing another package that I want to develop because I have other things I need to do beforehand. But mm-hmm. example is like bagging. So when you bag a model, you're creating different, you know you know, dozens maybe or more than that um, versions of a model. Sure. And then when you make a prediction, you run a sample through all the, you know, the, the ensemble models and then average or whatever that prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you want to do that with trees and, and other models. So storing all those models once you run them, I mean, running them is typically no different than you would have in base R. You can parallelize that and it's actually not that bad. Right. But um, I'll pick on our part a little bit more, but... Um, you know, there's no like, there's a formula, there's only have a formula method for our part. And so the, the formula method can be kind of expensive 
um, in terms of the things you have to save. Yes. And so when you when you bag our part, you think about like, well, I'll take a bootstrap sample and then just push it through our part. But every time you do that, you create a duplicate a duplicate of the the terms and all that stuff. And for a lot of models, that could be rather big. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to do predictions, um, you need all that to make predictions. And and also the thing about um, what's cool about trees and some other methods is you might start off with a hundred predictors, but only use like three. Right, so yep. you're so you're doing feature selection as you fit this model, but once you're locked in the formula method, you still need all hundred to make predictions, even if the model only uses three of them, mm-hmm. because the of the way the terms index the variables and things like that. Yeah. So, um, so I've been thinking about that for quite a long time, and then a guy at our studio, um, Edgar Ruiz, came up with this tidy predict package. Yeah, I've seen that. It was fascinating. Right, and so one of the things it does is it saves the prediction equation as an expression. Okay. Right. So if you think about that, um, and it works. So if you have dummy variables and all that, I'll have the variable, you know, have like that factor variable equals to, you know, the, the levels of that that get used in the split. So you don't have to make dummy variables for that model. And again, if you have three predictors, that expression would only be a function of three different variables. Okay. So with that, we can do bagging on all these things and only save the actual expressions. We don't need to save the models or anything. We don't yeah. have to save terms. We don't have to save anything from our part except for that that prediction expression. And that really trims out the junk, so to right. speak. <laughs> I mean, it's trivial. I mean, it's like it's like KB, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. So when we have tricks like that, we can do. We definitely want to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so performance in that way, where I'm thinking about that quite a bit. Yeah, that seems like the important stepping stone to get the even more performance enhancements later yeah. on. I'm fortunate that at the day job, I get access to a, a very wide Linux cluster and I can just farm out different, you know, model parameter fits on different nodes and then bring them all back together. But not everybody's going to have that. So I right. say we got to take the take the shortcuts or, or take the enhancements any way we can get them to make it easier yeah, for everybody. Yeah, and I, I try to educate people, um, you know, so so people will like... Um, a lot of people use Carrot and they don't know really what it does. Mm-hmm. And so I, the other day, someone had a, a fairly large data set and they maybe didn't understand how large it was because it was text. And so there's like, you know, it's just one, it's one predictor. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're making, using bag of words. I was like, you're making thousands of predictors out of that. So exactly. it's actually more than that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, in the, in the way he was doing it, he was like doing like um, tenfold cross-validation, three tuning parameters. I'm like, so you're fitting like 91 models or something yep. like that. Yep. And uh, he's like, well, don't, how do I tell it not to do that? I'm like, well, no. It, that's, <laughs> so, you know, I, so you have to, you know, you can't be, you know, cause all of us were there at some point. Right. So sure. a lot of it sometimes is, you know, I have a five gigabyte data set on my, you know, my, uh, my laptop, you know, when I run it on, you know, all eight cores, mm-hmm. my, you know, my computer starts to smoke. Right. So it's like, <laughs> well, don't do that. And so yeah. like, you know, having, having that, you know, giving that to people and saying like, well, you know, let's, Let's think about what you're trying to do before mm-hmm. you do it, because, um, and then it's like, what's well, taking forever? And it's like, well, yeah, it's going to take forever. Yeah, you can't get around that unless you, you change your mindset a bit. <laughs> yeah, so you know, we were trying to work with the limitations of what people have on usually on their laps or on their desk. Right. Um, but as much as we can do to make that better, we will. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, maybe um, what you want to verbally commit to tell tell everybody what's kind of next in the tiny model ecosystem. You mentioned Parsnip a bit. Whatever yeah. um, general areas are you are your team working on this year? So probably when I get back from the conference, um, I think the focus will be on a few things. So um, so we wrote this uh, like gui- set of guidelines. So a few of us got together and I've run it by a bunch of people and we published it like on a GitHub rep- repo. Where he said, well, okay, if you're going to make modeling packages, whether they're tidyverse-like packages or not, mm-hmm. like, here's some guiding principles. So, so for example, um, you know, you're going to make predictions with some models, and maybe you have some missing values, so you can't make predictions on those. A lot of prediction functions will default to just getting rid of those rows. So, you know, let's say you have five rows out of 100 with missing values. Mm-hmm. So you get 95 rows back, and you don't have any way to match those up to the original 100. So you go to merge yeah. those in, and you're like, whoa, i got to figure that out. Right? Yeah, yeah. So there's things like, you know, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's things a lot about naming. So naming um, seems trivial, but um, it's not. And then it's even more difficult to get people to be consistent. Sure. So, you know... Um, so, like, you know, data structures and naming is, like, 
two thirds of that specification. I see. Um, and then there's things, you know, just things like, so I've been, I've been kind of frustrated over the years and I try not, and it came out the other day on Twitter, but um, you know, I see a lot of VAR packages where I review papers for journals on software and basically we have a lot of people who are really, really, really smart about the computational method that they're implementing, mm-hmm. right? Let's say it's some like, like um, Glimnet type model, right? And, and they're really, really um, great at optimizing that. And then somebody's like, well, let's make an R package out of it. And they don't know anything about R, right? And so it's funny because their the numerics are super optimized, but their interface is awful. Mm. And, and so I've been really confounded by that over the years. And so this modeling guideline, what we did is we took it and then we, well, I don't think it's public yet, but I'm thinking the next month it will be, uh, we've wrote like a template. So the idea is we've, um, we've come up with what we think a baseline package structure is and how the methods and all should work for, um, for modeling packages. And then the idea is somebody who's new to R, like we'll have instructions and guidelines and things like that. Well, here's how you drop your, so you write that kernel of the computation, like the optimization, the model fitting and all that stuff. And then you have like another function that makes predictions. Mm-hmm. And, and your model fitting bit might assume it's a matrix and all dummy variables have been created, and that's fair. Right? Don't worry about that stuff because we build all that other infrastructure. Right? So if you look at like under the hood at LM, what it does, like how it like creates the model frame, the model matrix, right. like part of it is like demystifying that, um, but giving people a template that they don't have to be like software engineers to make a good R package. Yeah, exactly. They just need to be yeah. good at the part that they're good at. Yep. Right? And so, so we're going to have that um, come out. So that'll be nice because we can, we can hopefully get the... Um, the problem of people who are developing new packages to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and the, the main problem with that actually being uh, used is we want people to be aware of it. Absolutely, so I, awareness I think, is key. <laughs> right, so you know, if I were like a postdoc you know, somewhere and I have this great you know, machine learning method and somebody says make an R package out of it, if somebody walked up to me and said, oh yeah, somebody's already done 90% of the work for you, oh yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to use that, right? And so, um, so the the thing we need to work on there is just getting out the word on those, yeah, um, on the on that and and get feedback on it. And um, so I have like I have a lot of future plans for that about how people will interact with that. But mm-hmm. you know, just start with the baseline of that. And um, so that's something we'll have is like this modeling package template. Yeah. Um, and then uh, let's see what's next. So we've gotten the modeling bit to where we have I think most of the core components. So now we want to work on, um, I'm not sure what we're going to call it, but like a pipeline sort of interface. Okay. Where, you know, you want to do some pre-processing, maybe using recipes, yes. you know, fit a model, and then you might want to post-process, you might want to like come up with a different probability threshold, or um, like if you're doing classification model, like calibrate the, the, you know, the probability distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know... Um, and that's, I mean, you know, Spark does that and Scikit-Learn certainly does things like that. So we want to have something that's on the tidy side. Um, I'm not sure what we're going to call it because pipelines makes a lot of sense, but everybody uses that. But I think we're concerned that people can confuse that with the pipe, like the migrator pipe. That's what it was meaning in my mind when you first brought it up. <laughs> right, right. So, so, you know, it's, we're like torn because pipeline is what everybody calls it. Yeah. So in some sense, we're like... Okay, well, that makes sense. We don't have to explain it to people if we use you know, pipeline. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we have to say, but, you know, not that pipeline. Not yeah, the yeah. one that we've been talking about for, like, you know. <laughs> um, so that, that'll that be the next thing. And then, uh, and I th- I've already started that, and I don't think it's all that difficult. Because um, all the complexity of that is in recipes and parsnip and mm-hmm. all the other places. So it's just, like, organizing those objects and executing them in the right order and all that stuff. Yeah, And then the, the main thing that will be after that, which I'm really, really looking forward to, is the tuning part of it. So, you know, so the idea is, you know, you start off with a recipe, you put it in this pipeline, and maybe you're like, maybe you're using imputation. Like, maybe you're using k-nearest neighbor's imputation, but you're not sure what k should be. Yeah, right. Right? right? So in recipes right now, um, in parsnip and things like that, it, you can't really use it, but what you can do is you can say, well... I have this parameter, and I don't know what the, the, the value should be, but I could put a placeholder in there, a specific type of placeholder in there. Sure. Um, now, you can't execute the recipe until you know what that value is. But you can define the recipe and say, well, this is going to be a value, but I'm not sure what it is yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. 
And so then you can do that for your parsnip model. You can say like, well, I want to optimize, you know, the complexity parameter and the number of, you know, the minimum number of samples per node in my tree or whatever. And then there might be things on the post-processing where you say like, well, you know, I don't know that I should use the 50% cutoff for the probabilities, but I'm not sure what it should be. Maybe I should go from like 0.5 to 0.7 and find the specificity and sensitivity that I like from that. So, mm -hmm. so you have it, in this pipeline, you have different stages of tuning parameters. In, and again, in Carrot and some of the other methods, that is sometimes like rigidly defined. Like here's the menu of things you can change for that model. And if you want that menu to expand, you have to either write your own custom method or you have to like bug Max until he updates the, the code. Mm -hmm. And so the cool thing about this tuning thing is we can derive, we can look at those objects and find that placeholder and say like, oh, they're optimizing the number of nearest neighbors, the complexity parameter, the threshold for making a split, and the probability threshold. Mm -hmm. and, and now we know what those parameters are. We have predefined objects. You know, they can create their own grids and things like that, but we already have predefined things that we can just sub in there, um, especially if the, the range is pretty easily determined. And then we can just send that off and have it just tune all that stuff. Um, or put it in, you know, Bayesian optimization is a big thing now. So, you know, put it in some search method like Bayesian optimization or maybe a genetic algorithm, whatever, whatever sure. is efficient enough. Yeah, yeah. And say, you know, just like do 100 iterations and give me the best you come up with. Mm -hmm. And so it, it won't be completely automated, but we've, we've built in enough um, knowledge into each one of these objects that if you use, you know, the, the step for and imputation recipes, it knows what that parameter is. It's K, so it says, oh, that's the nearest, nearest neighbors, yep. and I'm using it in this context, so then when I go to optimize that, I know how to do that. Yeah. And so whether, you know, whether, so there's no predefined list here. It's really whatever, whatever is defined by your modeling method or recipes or whatever. Um, so it'll be a lot more freeform than other things. Yeah, it would be more free from, but at the same time, it's going to be extremely more powerful than having to have this in your mind about, nah, I think it's this, but it could be this, could be this, could be yeah. this, but what the model, what the, what the ecosystem or the backend intelligently define, okay, they're doing this model, we should use this range and, and, and give the user an easy way to implement that. Yeah, and, and probably the most important thing, <clears throat> the most crucial thing is like uh, reasonable defaults. Yes, right. Because, you know, that, that tuning process is going to depend on a lot of things. Yep. So we're going to, of course, use, like, resampling. So how you do resampling, you're going to optimize on some metrics. So we have to say, like, okay, what metrics are you going to use? So we can default some of those things to reasonable approaches and let people define those if they want to do something different. Um, and the same thing with parameter ranges. Like, some of that is very data-dependent, and some of it um, some of it's sometimes hard to define. Like, someone will ask me, like, okay, well... Weight decaying. It's got to be greater than zero, but like, like what is like what is it? Yeah, I'm like, exactly. oh, I usually go from like, you know, ten to the minus like five to like point one. Like, well, where'd you read that? I'm like, well, I didn't. I've just been doing this for a while, and that seems to work. <laughs> and sometimes you need to go to like to you know to one or ten. So you have to go above right, that range. Right. But you know, having like reasonable defaults that seem to work mm -hmm. um, would be the mm -hmm. the first thing because because if you had to specify everything then it's, it's almost not worth doing because you have to like do 20 things before you can do one thing. Um, so the, the hardest part will be like just setting up the defaults and, um, and how do we just, uh, if people don't want to make choices, how can we do things that will give them reasonable values and, and get them you know, in the ballpark at least of where they need to get. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you and of course your brilliant team are going to be right on top of that throughout the year. And, well, we'll and if we watching. mess it up, somebody will tell us. So that's nice to, <laughs> that's nice to know too. Yeah. Yeah. In the open source world, there no one's shy about critiquing. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so my last question for you is um, getting to la earlier last year, um, you and I had the, the we presented at the R and Pharma conference, the first ever one. And you've been away from life sciences for now a little over a year or so. Um, what are some areas that you think this industry in life sciences could probably get better at with using R to accomplish kind of, you know, more innovative ways of analyzing, you know, clinical trial data or, or, or model applications? Anything yeah, on top of your head? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> and I'd probably give different answers depending on the context. So, you know, um, I was a non-clinical, I was a proud non-clinical statistician for many years. <laughs> I, I, at another company before my last company, I managed a clinical stats group, so I understand the issues around that. So for them, you know, I, I think that the main thing would be, you know, whether it's R or something else, 
um, use something that enables you. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, most of the clinical statisticians I know get actually a little bit overwhelmed when they have to sort of go off script or go off protocol, right? So, sure. you know, um, back at Pfizer, we had a, a spectacular failure for a drug. Like it was the, it was yeah. the, the Lipitor replacement and oh. it just, it, it could not have bombed worse. Oh man. And you know, and then the, and then the, the leadership came to the statistics group and they said, well, how'd this happen? Which I think was, the answer was more political than it was data driven. Sure, but, sure. but I just remember sitting down with them and, and they sort of called me in and they're like, we don't know what to do. And it's not that they weren't smart and, and um, great statisticians, but you know, freeform like data investigation, exploration, and analysis was not something that they were accustomed to, and they were like really intimidated by that. Oh, okay. And so you know, and they and they figured they had to you know they should use R for that. So so I guess getting people over that hump. Um, there's a guy speaking at the conference, Mike. I always call him Mike K. Smith because that's there was a different Mike Smith advisor, but like, but Mike Smith. Um, I was talking to him last night, and you know his goal within that organization is to get people just acclimated with things like the tidy verse. Yes. Um, Cause you know, there, there, he, his, his, I shouldn't out people, but like, you know, his term for a lot of people he works with are like they're Excel jockeys, right? Which is, <laughs> unfortunately, I, mean, I know what you mean, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> I within the job that they're doing, that's a completely reasonable thing, sure, sure. but, but sometimes, you know, that's maybe not so efficient. And, and a lot of times I think that limits things they can do. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you can get them into, let's say via the tidyverse or whatever else, I don't care if it's data.table or tidyverse or whatever, get them being more um, data oriented and then that enables things like Shiny or Plotly or whatever and gets yes. them way, way, way further than they ever were before. So, so on the clinical side or, or the, the parts of um, life sciences that are more in the more regulated part of things, um, to me that would be the first thing is just to get them conversant in like a modern programming language Mm -hmm. And in something that will enable them to really explore the data well. Yes. Um, that that and it seems like low hanging fruit, and it probably is. Um, and maybe I should have a higher like goal for people. But I, I think if I think if people were like easily able to interrogate, ingest, and interrogate and visualize data, I think many, many, many problems would go away. Yes, I mean, I've seen situations too at work where a post-hoc analysis reveals something that saved the company millions of dollars by right. not going in the, in the wrong direction. So yeah. it, it, you're right, it's, a, it's about comfort level, awareness, and let's be honest, a lot of colleagues I work with are coming from a language that has three letters that is fairly entrenched in that industry and sometimes it's hard to change their workflow a little bit. So yeah. there's kind of that inertia to, to fight as well. But I think awareness and having these tools accessible and having this consistent um, workflow of analysis that the Tidyverse brings and now what you're working on with Tidy Models, I think it in 2019, it's much easier to access these, even if you're not a seasoned R user. I, I think with a little investment in your time, yeah. you can do exactly what you were saying and get insights from your data and not have to depend on an external vendor per se of crunching stuff out and not even having that being right. You can really take it on yourself. So Yeah, and there's, um, <clears throat> this is a little bit manipulative, but there's a lot of like, for lack of a better term, like social engineering that can happen. Mm -hmm. So I remember I used to work with a ton of molecular biologists in diagnostics, and um, and what I found was is you know the you might you might want to get a group working like we were trying to get them to use it, like old school experimental design like fractional factorials and response service designs, and um, and they had very complex media optimizations and assay optimizations, and um, and we had a lot of groups that were just super, super high throughput and efficient by doing that. And, mm -hmm. and we were trying to like get this one group to do it. And, and of all people, um, one of the scientists approached us about, about doing that. And so we got kind of an in and, and we, we did some basic experiments. And there's a certain amount of luck here that they found some really good conditions really fast for their assays. And, and so it's something like, you know, this, this guy goes into his Friday meeting and, you know, and I wasn't there, but he, you know, he just puts up like something that was taking him weeks to do before he did like in a day and a half. Wow. And again, there's some luck there. Well, I mean, sure. but they're doing like, you know, change one factor at a time, sort of meandering through like this random walk through the space of, yeah. of the assay conditions. Yeah. And, you know, in a, a, like a, it was like a 30, maybe a 16 point fractional factorial, you know, just happened to get it. But you set yourself up for success, but there's a certain amount of luck there. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is, you know, without him talking up this stuff, everybody else in that group was like, oh, I'm going to look bad. 
if, if I, you know, this guy is like outpacing us. So there, you know, there are, scientists can be very competitive. And so the same thing with like statistics, like if you have somebody slap up like a shiny app, right? And they're like, you know, you know, showing different subgroups and like hovering over points and it's saying, oh, it's, you know, then people like their eyes bug out sometimes like, oh, whether they want to do it or they're like, yeah. oh, I need to do this because I look bad if I don't. So, mm -hmm. so sometimes if you can get like one person on board, then at some point you'll get them all on board, whether it's out of like, um, uh, out of interest because, oh, that's really cool or out of fear of like, oh, I look bad. Sure. So, um, so there's some of that. And, and I think that goes, um, in these groups I was talking about where they're basically at the Excel level, mm -hmm. then it's such a step up that, um, that I think a lot of that will just, some of that, as long as you get one person, the rest of it will sort of come along, but we can do a better job of bringing them along in a more efficient way. Right. Um, right. So, so yeah, that, that would be the, the place I would, um, concentrate for like, that's like 90% of the people. Mm -hmm. And then the other 10%, like, especially on the research side, I don't know, it's hard for me to, I feel like it's been two years, but I feel like I'm like totally out of that world now. <laughs> um, I don't know that we need more models, honestly, is the, like the modeling guy. Mm -hmm. um, I said this on, a, on the, the data uh, camp podcast that, yep. you know, getting more on the Bayesian side gives you a lot of dividends. There's a lot of things that were very, very difficult to do um, in a non-Bayesian sense that once you start, you know, once you have a, a, post, a numeric posterior that you can sample from, like really, really good things happen. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, so I would, I would push people more in that direction now, I think. Yeah. That is the backbone of a lot of advanced simulation work that I've been involved right. with. And it just makes things so much easier to relay to stakeholders that it's not just a P value, right? Now you got to post yeah. you can interrogate and kind of look at where that cutoff is on the curve of the probability and show that, yeah, you probably don't want to be around there. This is, you know, the, the range right. of confidence we have. So, and the hangups people have for that just kind of cracked me up because um, they're like, well, okay, well, you know, what's, what's your prior? It's like, okay, that's not an unreasonable question. Oh, but sure. then you say like, well, wait, what's your prior? They're like, well, I'm not using Bayesian analysis. I'm like, yeah, but you're fitting a mixed model. They're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, so, but you're putting a, you're not calling it a prior. Yeah, but it, there's an inherent prior going on. Yeah. Well, but you know, your random effects are almost always assumed to be Gaussian because that's right. the way the math works out. Right. So, you know, not only do you have a prior that you haven't declared, it can only be Gaussian. Yeah. So, you know, you're I, very limited. So, you know, I don't go into like, I wouldn't go into meetings when somebody showed like repeated measures of analysis and, mm -hmm. you know, be like, well, what if it were T? <laughs> or what if it were like Koshi? Right? They'd be like, I don't know. Like, yeah. how would you do that? It's right. like, well, do you use Bayesian method? Like, ooh. Yep. So, you know, this, like, it's like this double standard of the people who actually have priors, who don't declare them and, and don't even acknowledge that they are priors, and then you can only use one. And they're those sure. people who are like, yeah, but what's your prior? It's like, oh, my goodness. So, uh, <laughs> So yeah, so I think everybody needs to relax about the priors a little bit. And yeah, yeah, there, there, there's, there's trade-offs if you go too deep into that. Into yeah, that unless you have like a super informative prior or, mm -hmm. or certain, I'm sure there's certain situations where the sensitivity of that is like perhaps exquisite, then, you know, okay. But yeah. for the most part, at least for, for almost everything I did, changing priors really did not affect um, I even did some like crazy stuff, like triangular priors and sure, things like that. And, sure. And there was, and again, for these particular examples, the results weren't really all that different. Yeah. So. Yeah. So you got to find find where the investment in, in your effort is, where it's best spent. Right. Sometimes it may not be the prior. Maybe in other niche cases it is, but in the end, you got to have an open mind of where to concentrate on all that. Well, Max, this has been a pleasure. I, I always enjoy seeing you at these conferences, and I, I know you'll be leading a Tidy Modeling Workshop in the next couple of days. Yes. And hope the preparation for that's going well, and uh, everybody will learn a lot of interesting things there. And um, thanks again for joining me today. And, um, yeah, well, you're happy to come back on anytime. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me. This has been great. Absolutely. All right, everybody, we'll be right back. So it's always been fun whenever I get to connect with Max at these various conferences, and he was very gracious to be a part of part of that uh, conversation for recording, and I really hope you enjoyed that. I have links to many of the resources he mentioned from the whole Tidy Models uh, GitHub organization to some of his work with Parsnip and the Carrot packages, and also he mentioned that kind of set a guidance, you know, a little guidance online 
for if someone wants to build a package in R that does modeling, some of the best practices that could be followed that would make it very easy for him and his team to be able to incorporate that in the Tidy Models uh, ecosystem. So I'll have a link to that as well. So, yes, as I mentioned at the top, this is my episode that kind of put a bow and wrap up my coverage of what was a very um, important to me, but very uh, enlightening, uh, very enjoyable conference of RStudioConf 2019. By now, you've definitely seen there's been a lot of interesting blog posts, um, shared you know insights on Twitter, um, and I've shared some of those in the previous two episodes. What I want to spend the last few minutes of this episode is to share some of the additional um, kind of takeaways I've had from uh, some of the conference talks that you may have not seen as much um, chatter about online. But I think they definitely deserve a, a listen and also some follow-up, and I, I definitely will be doing the same. So actually, by, by the time I'm recording this, I've finally gotten through all the conference recordings. and so much good content. I just basically was able to take advantage of my rather lengthy commute to work to listen to all of these. Um, so I finally got through the last one this morning when I'm recording this. Um, so I'm going to go highlight, you know, I can't obviously cover all of them because, you know, I have time to cover all of them, but I want to highlight a few that give me some insights to help both the, uh, quote day job, as well as some of my personal endeavors with the R community and some of my open source work that I plan to do. Um, so one of the focuses that I've been trying to do for both at work and also in some personal stuff is help other users get on board with some of these innovative packages or innovative tooling a heck of a lot easier. Um, I, I may have mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but I think an underrated but yet very important capability in the case of the RStudio environment, or the IDE, I should say, is the concept of add-ins. So if you haven't used add-ins before and you're kind of wondering what is the, what's, the, what's in it for you, so to speak, you should really check out um, Hal Shu's talk on empowering a data team with RStudio add-ins. He really balanced this talk with practical explanations and demonstrations, but you can reduce so much friction or so much pain points to people that are new to R and maybe also are new to the computing infrastructure at your organization, no matter if it's like an ac academic institution or a, a big enterprise, you can make an add-in very easily and do almost anything in it, even if it's just pointing people to an internal resource. I mean, I didn't even thought about that before, but why not have an add-in that simply indexes all the key links for people to maybe get the right system accounts or where to go for internal Git or GitHub packages, whatever have you. But there's obviously much more complex things you can do. But I feel like that is the bridge that some users need is a little guidance in terms of a GUI interface to take advantage of maybe an internal or, or other package um, to utilize it effectively. So Add-ins are something I've not created myself yet, but I definitely plan on trying it this year um, with, some, with some projects in mind. Speaking of reducing friction, so I, as we know, as a user of R knows very well, is that we have an abundance of online packages on CRAN. So last I heard, it's over 13,000 now, which is still, she makes me shake my head about how, how much growth there's been. So package installation, if, of course, R itself has the install.packages function to get any package from CRAN. And if you want a package from a Git-like repository online or even a, a on-premises Git location, there is the, um, the remotes package, which is somewhat newer. Previously, it's been mostly in DevTools that lets you install a package from GitHub. Well, I, I'm happy to see that um, Gabor Sardi, um, a software engineer at our studio, he is taking a new approach to package installation. And it's had a few name changes, but the current name, as it's been released on CRAN, is called PAC. 
and that's PAK. What's nice about this framework is that it is taking advantage of uh, system technologies that admittedly the install.packages function is not touching. It is able to do things like um, do parallel HTTP requests to hit various CRAN repos and be able to use um, spawn system processes that are separate from the current R process to handle installation and give you some helpers in terms of maintenance and warning you when maybe a package is going to be upgraded and letting you do some self-contained package library environments. Now, I've seen the talk, and I'll have a link to Gabor's talk from the conference in the show notes as well, and I also have a link to the pack, uh, package uh, documentation site. I have not tried it very carefully yet, but it is intriguing to me to see if this can be part of a larger effort in terms of not only package installation, but the whole idea of analysis or project reproducibility with dependencies of the package, package versions that you're using in a project. Um, there is, of course, the PackRat, among other solutions, the PackRat package, among other solutions to try and tackle that problem. But it'll be interesting to see if Pack can also play a role in reducing that. Um, it can be a very complicated workflow in terms of maintaining reproducibility, but not compromising the user experience of getting to that point. So PAC is still early days, and I think they're still working out some of the kinks in terms of usability. But as, a, as an advocate of reproducibility at, at work and also just in general our usage, I think this will be an important step to that, maybe part of the plumbing that makes that a lot easier. Another thing I've been passionate about is the idea of exploring how R integrates with other technologies. So R itself has been no stranger to you know, interacting with libraries based in C++, Fortran, um, Java, you, have, you name it, and also has recently had a real boon with interacting with, basic, uh, with a lot of online APIs. There's a ton of packages out there that interface with custom APIs that are publicly available. But what happens if you want to make an API that's truly based on some kind of R analysis or R execution. Well, that's where the Plumber package comes in. Plumber itself is not really new, and it's it's originally authored by by Jeff Allen at R Studio. Um, but he but there was a talk by James Blair, um, one of the R Studio solution engineers, about democratizing R with Plumber APIs. What was really nice about that talk is it gave a kind of a basic recap of how Plumber works, but he had this great example of how basically a P API that was produced with Plumber could be consumed with something completely different than what you might be used to. It was consumed by a phone app, for goodness sakes, like a phone app. So what's nice about this is that you may be in situations where you have to interface R with some kind of legacy product. You can't exactly put Shiny in front of some kind of analytical routine because there are some limitations. Well, if you have the capability of um, hosting or, or maintaining an API on some kind of service, you could use R to expose some really interesting ideas or interesting analyses and have any kind of other tool that is capable of doing simple HTTP GET requests um, to be able to consume that, that idea. And there was another talk by um, some employees at T-Mobile at about how they used Plumber to make a very high, highly available API for their customers, and that's another talk worth checking out. But I, but I see tons of possibilities where, where we can connect have R be able to connect to other things from both a consuming standpoint, but also a pro producing standpoint. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but usually I've used R to consume stuff, not so much expose stuff. I guess Shiny is the one way I've been exposing various things through a GUI, but Plumber gives me a more lower level approach that I, I would be able to use any kind of front end to expose it to expose that service or let users consume that service. So 
plumber is on my list of things to learn about and try about, especially some of my open source stuff I want to get into later this year. So as a self-professed kind of Linux and open source, you know, DevOps junkie or geek, I don't know what the right term is. I've always had a soft spot for how those that are kind of balancing using R, but also administering R effectively. Um, Kelly O'Brien is another engineer at our studio, and she had the great talk about configuration management tools for an R admin. Now, I admit, if you're not into doing administrative stuff with R, you may not get a lot out of this, but I've been in the situation where I've administered my own RStudio server, both, of course, for personal stuff on the cloud and also the prototype things at the day job. And she gives some really nice ideas of how you can automate the process of deploying an infrastructure, how you can easily adapt it, easily change it without going through all the manual steps of like spinning up a custom server or spinning up um, virtual servers, saving a lot of the manual headache that you might have to deal with if you don't have an automated mechanism. So if you're if you're like me, you're kind of like an R admin on the side, that that is is a really great talk. And even if you are a full-fledged R admin, then you should definitely check that stuff out. And it kind of opens your eyes to the possibilities of if you make an investment in time to learn how powerful these management tools are, especially combined with Linux, there's you can achieve almost anything. So she's actually done some interesting blog posts on her Medium blog about how she's been interfacing with their um, RStudio Connect product to do some interesting workflows. So, yeah, she's got a lot of nice content out there. So definitely check that out. So lastly, you kind of heard me talk with Max in that previous conversation about what can the industry I work in, life sciences, do to use R more effectively and help optimize some workflows there. Well, a couple of the, the, the last items I'll share um, right now really are a big step in that direction. So he had mentioned a former colleague when he was at um, Pfizer named Mike Smith. Well, he had a great presentation called The Lazy and Distracted Report Writer Using R Markdown and Parameterized Reports. This was a really engaging, very um, down-to-earth, but very um, funny talk that he put together. Not so much funny in terms of all the content, but he, he has a great sense of humor. Um, but he really enlight- showcased the ideas of we should be past the point of having to do all these manual reports, whether they're um, a Word document or a table or, or more complex report that as long as we can have a a very accessible interface to that through our markdown, it saves the the report creator a ton of time when updates are needed, and it saves them all the grunt work of copy and pasting and all that stuff that can cause complete havoc if you do any mess up along the way. So uh, Mike had a really great talk. I'll have a link to his in the show notes. Um, if you're not using R Markdown to help with your reporting, um, that's a great way to showcase what is the potential of it. And that may give you the jump start to look at that and also check out that Advanced R Markdown workshop materials that I mentioned a couple episodes ago. So, so the last item I want to mention was admittedly very specific to being applied to life sciences, but you could definitely generalize a lot of the concepts to being used in other industries. It was actually a poster presented by Jeremy Wildfire from Roe Inc. entitled uh, Modernizing the Clinical Trial Analysis Pipeline with R and JavaScript. So it actually was showcasing two packages that have been created as part of some initiatives, one called Safety Graphics and one called Data Digest. Each of these um, have very interesting ideas. Um, Safety Graphics is basically a shiny app that is able to take in special, able to produce more specialized graphics tailored to more of the lab type data using some of the data standards that have been prevalent in submissions of clinical trial results to a regulator. Um, If you're in the industry, you know what ADAM and SDTM stand for. If you're not in the industry, well, feel free to look them up. Um, But anyway, this app will 
definitely um, let the user easily produce these visualizations, very interactive, and have lots of widgets to drill down into the data and do some custom subsetting. But it's another nice way to get your hands on the results of a data set without having to manually create all those outputs. So that's worth checking out, especially if you're in this field. The other one definitely can be applied to any industry. Um, this package is called Data Digest. This, give, this is actually a set of custom JavaScript widgets that will give you very concise interactive data summaries. What's cool about this is you can use this within RStudio or R itself and just load in a data set to a function and have the interface automatically appear. But the real interesting hook is you can actually hook this into a Shiny app or embed it in a Shiny app. So you could take advantage of what this widget is giving you and not have to recode it all yourself just because you're using Shiny to do it. So I play with this a little bit and just some initial explorations, but this is gonna make looking at a data set or reviewing trends in a data just so much easier because you don't have to code anything. It gives you all these widgets to select levels of a factor, do custom grouping, and drill in via the interactive bar charts or line charts where, what kind of observations are being driven by certain, or certain ranges of the data. So I'm in, very impressed by it. And admittedly, it gives me more of a desire to become at least more competent with JavaScript because I feel like if there's one additional language I want to learn alongside R itself and, and integrate it with R more effectively, I'm being more convinced that it's got to be JavaScript, at least for my personal and my, um, my responsibilities um, for creating some interesting things to do with web visualizations or web reporting, things like that. JavaScript is such a huge um, framework in and of itself. But if I can just know enough to be dangerous, so to speak, I might be able to do some more custom outputs, custom visualizations that admittedly seem pretty intimidating to me. But looking at Data Digest is, gives me hope that with some investment that any of us can create these really powerful widgets that R can call directly and pass information back and forth. So. Again, I, I kind of heard about these before the talk, before the poster session, but once I saw these in action, I was thinking, yeah, it's the time to invest in that. So I guess some kind of more final takeaways is you've heard in the past couple of episodes, I really enjoyed this conference, not just for the content from that our Markdown workshop and the excellent talks that I could attend, and of course, being on the other side as a presenter was a, a like a once in a almost a once in a lifetime experience. I hope I get to do it again in the future. But that was a thrill of all thrills to be able to speak about a topic I'm passionate about and have a receptive audience. Because sometimes when you're passionate about these things and you talk about them, whether it's at work or even just in other uh, smaller venues you don't really know who is going to appreciate that sometimes. So it was really cool to see that real-time feedback. I'm not going to lie. So hope I get to present it things again in the future. But um, it gave me a lot of perspective on things that I can pursue in the future. And, you know, like any industry conference, you're going to have your moments of, uh, like, what do I choose to attend next? So having a three-chat conference makes you uh, make some tough choices in terms of what you see live versus what you catch up, you know, afterwards. But I'm really happy with the, the experience, the way it turned out, and also meeting so many awesome people. My The familiar faces that I met um, for sometimes like the fourth or fifth time, it never gets old, but it's so fun to catch up with, with Ian Little, Dina Telly, um, uh, Shao, one of my former colleagues from work was also attending. There's lots of, lots of people that I, I've seen more than once. And some of the newer faces of people that I followed along the way, um, Colin Faye, if you're listening to this, it's been real awesome to meet you. And I'm actually in the process of maybe contributing to one of his packages. We'll see what happens. Um, but it's, it's definitely given me some, some awesome connections to explore. And I'm actually hoping to bring along some of those people I met for future interviews. So I hope you stay tuned for those. 
But yeah, I've, again, I really enjoyed the experience and hopefully the last few episodes have given you at least a taste of what's been offered combined with some of the excellent posts that have been seen by other attendees and even others that were just watching the Twitter feed or watching the, the other online uh, resources come along. There's been a lot of, a lot of great um, perspectives that are shared. So knock on wood, I'll be um, interacting with the community more in person later this year, maybe uh, one or two other opportunities, still waiting to hear back on one that maybe sooner than later, but hopefully I'll have an announcement about that if things go well. But I think that is going to wrap up my coverage. And before I, before I, I turn off the mic, so to speak, I want to mention that you can find show notes for this and all the previous episodes at our website. That is r-podcast.org. Every episode has a hyperlink right on the main page with both the audio, um, audio embed as well as the YouTube video equivalent, which um, has a little waveform with sometimes funny pictures or whatever. Um, you can also get in touch with me. Um, lots of ways to do that. The um, easiest way is to go to r-podcast.org slash contact and either fill out the contact form or send me a direct email or send me a tweet. My Twitter handle is at the rcast. And I'm, you can also find me on GitHub at rpodcast for both GitHub and GitLab. Lastly, if you can check out all the previous guests that have been on the show with a little snippet of their bios at the guest page at r-podcast.org slash guest. And if you would like to come on the show and share what you've been, you what some of your innovative work about R or maybe a package you've been writing, shoot me an email or get in contact. I'd, be, I'd love to chat more. So that is going to wrap up episode 28 of the R Podcast. Until next time. End of line.